0: I'm your host, Brooke Hines. That is different music because it is a very special episode. And we have a situation tonight. It's Valentine's Day. Uh, this has been, you know, quite a week. We had uh, another impeachment, uh, like Groundhog Day, and another acquittal. And uh, we have Janine Maloff, uh, who has a segment prepared on uh, on, on that whole situation and, and what could and should be done from from here, you know. On the table, there was a uh, a call to use the Fourteenth uh, Amendment to prevent Trump from uh, running for office again. That prevents uh, you know people who have in- been involved in an insurrection from running for office again. We have a theory as to why that wasn't brought up. And that's because there are some senators who were also involved in that. And so if they brought up the 14th Amendment, it would also catch those other uh, people up in, you know, the uh, in the dragnet. And they don't want to do that. I don't think they want to do that. I don't think they're going to do that. As a matter of fact, Nancy Pelosi is out there today saying that she's praying that she prays for a strong Republican Party. You know, right now is the Democratic Party is a is a shit show, just just a, a ridiculous mess. She's praying for a strong Republican Party. Don't believe me?
1: Here we One go. Of my prayers is that the Republicans will take back their party. The country needs a strong Republican Party. It's mm-hmm. done so much for our country.
0: The Republican Party has done so much for our country, from Ronald Reagan to George W. Bush and his father, Poppy Bush, the Republican Party. What would we have done without the Republican Party? Oh, my God. Um, so we hear Pelosi pray, um, saying that she prays for a strong Republican Party. We don't hear Pelosi saying she prays for people without health care during a pandemic or for uh, the unemployed, people who are losing their homes again. Where those going bankrupt from medical bills, bills, no, no pairs for us. Uh, you know, I think that it serves, and I'm not the only person who thinks this, it, that, that it serves institutional interests for a strong Republican Party so that the Democrats can blame inaction, you know, that serves inaction, that actually serves a purpose, serves the interest of the plutocrats, uh, it makes sense, you know, to keep the Democratic Party in check, to make sure that there are, you know, just very slim margins and, and you know, nobody can actually get anything done. The, the grid, Gridlock actually serves uh, moneyed interests. <clears throat> well, so I was, like, chatting it up, no big deal. Just chatting it up on Twitter today. And a uh, uh, frequent guest of the show, Kardik uh, uh pipes up and he says, uh, it's because people who believe in democracy don't believe in one party systems. I really don't like or I don't really believe in two party systems either. I uh, would want multiple parties like France, duopoly, now taking hold in UK for what it's worth also, I am almost certain watching live that that's what she meant. It's fine with me if the Republicans eventually get their shit together. Um, But after all that just happened since January 6th and the whole impeachment and acquittal process, you know, the trial in the Senate and all that stuff that just happened, um, I'm not going to give them a hand up. And, and and I don't think any other Democrat should be giving them a hand up. I think that we should be uh, uh, ridding the Republican Party of the people who uh, aided that situation, insurrection, siege, pooched, whatever you want to call it. And let's be real. There is only one party in the United States, and that's the party of money. And neither you... My dear listener, nor I nor cardic are part of that, and I think it's it's time, uh, to grow all the way up and see that for what it is. You know, cardic is is very attached to this idea of pluralism, and pluralism is something that you know. If you go into political science for a second year or a third year, you will probably discuss, hopefully you will discuss pluralism at a, uh, at a deeper level than just the surface. But, you know, essentially, I mean, if you want the Wikipedia version, classical pluralism is the view that politics and decision making are located mostly in the framework of government, but that many non-governmental groups use their resources to exert influence. And in this case, I think they're referring to, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats. The central question for classical pluralism is how power and influence are distributed in a political process. Groups of individuals try to maximize their interests. Lines of conflict are multiple and shifting as power is a continuous bargaining process between competing groups. In classical pluralism, there may be inequalities, but they tend to be distributed out evenly uh, by the various forms and distributions of resources throughout the population. Now, if you look around the population and you look at the inequalities and the inequities and you know the fact that that you, you know uh, people of color are, are are just murdered by the police left and right you don't get ahead in, in in this economy unless you were born to money and everybody coming out of college who wasn't born to money who didn't have their parents giving them a free ride to college everyone is in debt peonage And basically until they die. And God forbid you should get sick and get medical debt on top of that. You know, I mean, even if you have insurance, you are going to have medical debt. Uh, You know, we are basically uh, in servitude, in a kind of indentured servitude. All of us are, at least from Gen X on up. And this is part of the problem with the boomers is they don't understand this because they actually got free college. They actually didn't have student loans. They actually had it a lot easier. You know, when they were starting out in the job market, they were getting paid fair wages and they weren't having to deal with a gig economy. So right now we don't have anything close to pluralism that makes any kind of, uh, has any kind of bearing on you and I. And Because it has no bearing on you and I and normal people, why should we care if millionaires and billionaires in Congress who are Republicans and millionaires and billionaires in Congress who are Democrats, who cares which ones of them, you know, how the scales balance out? Who cares if there's a strong Republican Party or strong Democratic Party? They don't do anything. They never do anything in power or not in power, I mean, like the Republicans, when they're in power, when they're really strong and they're in power, they're really good at starting wars and they're really good at opening up the treasury and just giving out money, you know, like they gave out 12 trillion dollars to the banks that was under Obama and they gave six trillion dollars out to businesses under Trump for Covid relief, while we're sitting down back here, going, "Hey, could we just have like that two thousand dollars you promised us? Remember the other week when you were saying, if these two guys get elected, does checks will go out the door?" and blah blah blah, and, and that's a no, you know. So I don't understand this pluralism uh, that uh, that that people think is supposed to exist i think the only place this pluralism exists is in sophomore political science classes and uh you know maybe maybe if there's a political science professor a political economy person who wants to uh you know join the show sometime and you know maybe we can discuss this at greater length but uh my point is is that uh wow that is a bunch of bullshit right pluralists are supposed to stress civil rights such as freedom of expression and organization and an electoral system with at least two parties on the other hand since the participants in this process constitute only a fraction of the populace the public acts mainly as bystanders There's supposed to be some sort of representational uh, exchange there you know, the people who are in the parties and are part of these governmental institutions are supposed to stand for something other than putting more money in the pockets of their uh, uh, friends and neighbors, essentially. I don't have much sympathy for that. Um, pluralism is supposed to be composed of diverse and competing interests, but um, in our case, the only interests that get served are donors, Okay. Neither party is servicing voters. Uh, there is no pluralism, and there hasn't been pluralism in this country for a very long time. And if you want to talk about diverse interests in the United States, you can talk about uh, banks versus fossil fuels, you know, or tech companies versus uh, insurance companies. You know, those are the competing interests. Those are the ones that have a seat at the table. We do not have a seat at the table. I hope... I hope it gets better. My hope is not that it stays like this. My hope is not to stay in a in a state of, you know, having a lot to talk about uh, that is critique on a show on Sunday. Uh, my hope is to have a, a a better place for everyone to survive and thrive. Um. Right now, Joe Biden has the authority vested in the executive office. By the way, to eliminate all student debt. Okay, so so his friend of mine uh, took out twenty seven thousand dollars to to do college, and this was back in the early nineties, and um, she paid on that for twenty thirty years. And now she owes (laughs) $31,000. So she pays this student loan for 30 some years, say 1991, 2001, 2011. That's 30 years. Pays 30 years on this loan. Had to take a forbearance here and there, but, but not a lot. I mean, she's basically been employed the whole time since college doing, uh, all kinds of various professional this and that and very good education super smart person amazing writer and uh, so mid 90s from Suntrust bank uh she took out $27,000 uh consolidated uh loans in 2010 um after paying for 30 years, only $7,500 of that $27,000 was principal. The rest was interest. Um, and because of the way that the interest rate rates work and because of the way that everything's set up to screw students and, you know, make us, you know, uh, in debt and indentured to the banks now she owes more money than she actually took out to start with after paying for 30 years now i don't understand how you can run a country like that i don't understand how that's any kind of that's 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 no kind of fair that's that's no kind of way to uh Um, get the best and the brightest out there to do their best to make things better that's not what that is that's using us as ATM machines as human flesh and blood ATM machines they've just you know hooked us up and they're just sucking money out of us and we can never get ahead we can never buy houses we can't have families we can't have a regular life the way that our parents did and their parents did if you were going to draw a circle around what is uh what is going on this week and what I think is important, you know I think that um I think that that is it I think we've got i think we've got a lot of uh foot dragging when it comes to this catastrophe that is happening with uh you know people with this pandemic with the rank and file with with regular old voters we have a catastrophe on our hands we have a, an economic catastrophe getting ready to 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 hit us and just uh, just last night this uh story comes across my uh um radar that joe biden is making a gamble with farm aid and medicare and he's saying that if if the, if the Democrats embrace a fast track plan, according to, to Joe Biden's, you know, what he wants, the $1.9 trillion pandemic aid, um, if that doesn't happen, uh, he's taking hostage Medicare and farm aid. And so the story goes, uh, the budget gambit Democrats are embracing to fast-track Joe Biden's uh, $1.9 trillion pandemic aid plan will trigger billions of dollars in cuts to critical programs. Top Democrats are already shrugging off the threat, insistent that Congress will once again act in time to head off slashing the programs like Medicare and farm subsidies, a byproduct of using the reconciliation process. But in but in that high stakes trust fall, trust fall, you know when you fall over and you expect someone to catch you, Democrats will be relying on Senate Republicans they are now spurning. So here's Nancy Republican, I mean Nancy Republican, fucking hell. Here's Nancy Reagan, not Nancy Reagan. Jesus Christ. Nancy Pelosi out there saying that she wants a strong Republican party. And at the same time, uh, Joe Biden, if we were playing poker, he just pushed all of the chips that say Medicare on them onto the table and all of the chips that say farm aid on them onto the table. That's all of the heartland. That's, that's all of the so-called flyover countries. He's put all of those chips on the table and he's playing chicken and he's saying, I'm willing I'm willing to give up Medicare, and I'm willing to give up Farm Aid if you guys don't get this work done. And he's talking to a bunch of people who really don't want to get that work done. And, by the way, people who have no interest in preserving Medicare or Farm Aid. So really, as far as they're concerned, you know, what the heck? Let's just uh, let it all run out, let the clock run out, and they would achieve the goal of ending Medicare and ending subsidies to farmers in the Midwest. I believe that's what Republicans would call a win-win. So we could be facing here in a in short order we could be facing a pandemic where medicare doesn't even exist anymore this is how out of touch they are all right uh i feel like i should say something about valentine's day that is a a little more upbeat and i'm sorry for for uh, um so much um so much of this energy, I feel like the energy that I have right now is, um, is the sort of energy that is, uh, less expansive and, and, and less good and less happy. And, um, I'm looking through my timeline and I'm looking for something that will, uh, I've got it. I've got some fun stuff to share. And speaking of Valentine's, you know, uh, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, tweeted out their Valentine's wish to everyone, and they did it in the form of a poem. They uh, they write, roses are red, violets are blue. Happy Valentine's Day from CIA to you. Um, and so I thought that deserves to be, quote, tweeted, and I wrote a... Roses are red, state violence is blue, you've got oil, the CIA will overthrow you. Here's another good one. Roses are red, violets are blue. These are the governments that the CIA overthrew. Syria, 1949. Iran, 1953. Guatemala, 1954. The Congo, 1961. Iraq, 1963, Brazil, 1964, Chile, 1973, Argentina, 1976, Grenada, 1983, Panama, 1989, Venezuela, 2002, Haiti, 2004, Honduras, 2009, Libya, 2011, Paraguay, 2012, and Bolivia, 2019. And they're getting ready to try and do it again in Bolivia. So keep an eye out for that. A personal fave here. Roses are red. You're the CIA. Tell us what you did to JFK. Here's one by somebody who goes by the name Boss Hogg USMC. He says, roses are red, violets are blue. I worked at the CIA. The rumors about Brennan being a dildo are true. Love this one. Roses are red, violets are blue. The CIA, NSA, and FBI illegally monitor you. Roses are red. Torture is a vocation. You sexually assaulted detainees and called it enhanced interrogation. Roses are red. Milk comes from cows. You set up a fake Pepsi factory to manufacture opium in Laos. And the last one, roses are red, violets are blue, in solidarity with the Global South. Hey, CIA, fuck you. Yeah, so I'm uh, earning the explicit label on the all uh, show today. And um, I'm also playing with all of these sounds that I have banked on my uh Roadcaster Pro, who is in no way supporting my podcast. But uh, Roadcaster Pro, that's what I use. You should sure too. And this story is so good, it deserves that intro music right there. We've got, uh, from the Daily Poster this week, something that I think everyone deserves to uh, know about. This is a story that uh, took three people to write. Julia Rock. Andrew Perez and David Sirota, and I got to say, the voice, the writing in this piece is extraordinary. It is not your typical like quick post that was uh, pushed out. This was uh, this was thought about, and one of the one of the uh, well, okay. Let's back up. It's called the Beltway Media is Manufacturing Consent, how elite news organizations are working overtime to try to block families from getting the $2,000 survival checks that we were promised. Now. You know, it seems like it seems like the Democrats don't need any help in blocking the $2,000 checks. It seems like they're not behind that very much uh just on their own. Um and I think that uh the, the besides what's going on in Congress, I think that this piece actually makes a a, a normative case against cable news because as I get into this, you're going to be as infuriated as I am. Now, um she said or the the group the group of editors and writers say it is not a revelation that elite media outlets bake ideology into their news coverage and manufacture consent in fact a new poll shows americans sense the scam and are well aware that something is deeply rotten in the news industry so please for god's sakes what is stop watching it why don't you however the press driven discourse about promised two thousand dollars survival checks offers something new and rare an unvarnished glimpse of exactly how this consent 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 manufacturing behind the process uh, really works in real time and I love this sentence this is this is the reason to read this piece. When you follow the money behind the process, you invariably find yourself where most truth seekers end up in American life. Staring into the deadened eyes of billionaires who like things just the way they are. So this story tells what, what the machinations are behind the scenes. What What is actually going on uh, with the people? Who are pulling the strings, who are making the marionettes move on the cable news TV box thing. Um, and it says uh, the sort of tale started in December, a few days after Congress passed a bipartisan stimulus package that was awaiting Donald Trump's signature. Now, this was the $600, right? Trump demanded Congress revise the legislation to boost direct payments from $600 to $2,000 or $4,000 for couples. House Democrats quickly called his bluff and passed a bill to increase the checks. Well, so good for them. That's when the media's consent manufacturing machine kicked into high gear. And guess who was out in the front of this? Larry Summers, former Secretary of the Treasury and head of the National Economic Council. He appeared on Bloomberg's, that would be Mike Bloomberg's television uh, situation, and declared, he said, quote, I don't think the 2000 checks would make much sense. That's what Larry Summers thinks. I'm not sure. uh, Was was Larry Summers actually the one who had the uh, too big to fail license tag vanity tag on his car i think he would i mean if he wasn't just just send me an email or a text or a dm let me know um he added quote i'm not even sure i'm so enthusiastic about the 600 checks and i think taking them to 2000 would actually be a pretty serious mistake and would risk a temporary overheat because, you know, this economy is just on the verge of overheating <laughs> and an, an overheat, which they, they discuss parenthetically, refers to the idea that the amount of money moving in the economy exceeds the capacity um, of the economy to accommodate it. And then that, that could lead to an inflationary type of situation. And we are so far away from the potential of a, an inflationary situation. If only that was what we should be worried about right now. Um, This is Summers, by the way, uh, reprising his destructive role in limiting economic stimulus uh, the way he did in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, uh, which delivered, get this, the weakest economic recovery in modern American history. But that context is never mentioned by any media outlets when he's invited on. He's just Larry Summers, king of economical things and bloomberg tv amplified his message publishing another summer's op-ed in which he insisted that there is quote no good economic argument for two thousand dollar checks well let me give you guys an economic argument that you might understand
1: you fuck off fuck
0: off
1: Fuck off back to Washington. No, fuck
0: off. Well, the Amazon Post, no, no, I mean the CIA Post, no, no, I mean the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos's newspaper, uh, quickly followed suit with an editorial headlined, quote, why increasing the stimulus checks from $600 to $2,000 is a bad idea. Uh, the editorial claimed without evidence that the stimulus legislation, uh quote, showered billions on people who suffered little or no lasting hardship from the pandemic. The Post argued that targeting modest payments to the hardest hit low income segment of the population would make the most sense. And guess what? That uh, argument, word for word, is what Mitch McConnell used to refuse to bring the uh, bill to the floor back when he was in the majority. So then, as you know, uh, Joe Biden was inaugurated uh, after all of this brouhaha about the $2,000 checks. You know, if you vote for Warnock and Ossoff, then... $2,000 $2,000 checks would immediately go out the door. Well, that turned into out the door after something, maybe impeachment, uh, m- maybe maybe sometime in March, maybe sometime in April. Now we're hearing that the checks aren't actually going to be uh, $2,000. They're $1,400 in which uh, uh, the, the the $600 had already be, uh, been appropriated. And uh, very, very good Democrats have let it be known all of over social media, that um, if you didn't hear the $1,400 initially, or you just didn't understand that that's what they meant, then you can't do math. So, um, so that's a really good way to uh, work voters up for the next election. But uh, wait, it gets worse. Now they're saying there's a there's a story in Business Insider that's been shared a gajillion times that is uh, arguing that a $1,400 stimulus check will allow 22.6 million Americans to pay their bills in full through mid-July. Apparently, there's 22.6 million people whose... Uh, cost of living is around $185 a month. And I would love to know where they're living. Because I don't see it anywhere on a map. As a matter of fact, the average renter right now is more than $5,000 behind on rent. So just to get some real stats up here, 8 million more are living in poverty today than before the pandemic. 9 million, maybe those are the people, by the way, with the with the bills that are around $185 a month. Maybe that's what they're talking about. I'm about to check the poverty levels. Uh, 9 million small businesses are in danger of closing permanently, and 10 million people are behind on rent yeah, please do tell us about how a measly $2,000 is going to overheat the economy. And probably the most infuriating thing is that there is a new talking point out that if in two, 2019 you earned over $75,000 or your family brought in uh, $150,000 or less uh, or more, rather, uh, you're cut off you should be cut off from stimulus checks. Because if you made that kind of money in 2019, then God knows in 2020, when a pandemic hit, you would have millions and millions of dollars just saved up. Well, that talking point, interestingly enough, comes from a Harvard University think tank called Opportunity Insights. And that think tank just happens to be funded by the family foundations of Mark Zuckerberg, Mike Bloomberg, and Bill Gates. Quote, cutting off stimulus checks to Americans earning over $75,000 could be wise, new data suggests. This is a, a Washington Post headline that is pretty much just cribbed from the think tank's uh, talking points. The one-page analysis from Opportunity Insights based on consumer spending data asserted that households making more than $78,000 per year in 2019 will spend about $45 of the $600 checks authorized by Congress in December within a month of receiving them. <laughs> we got a, a six hundred dollar check, and I gotta tell you, um, that went out the door immediately, fuckingly. a fucking immediately, all the fucking way out the door, like fucking immediately. All right, uh, spend forty five dollars of it. Can you imagine people peeling off a, a couple of twenties and a fiver and being like, "Yeah, just stick the rest of this in my four hundred one k." So, just in case you're wondering, this is not some minor tweak. These suggestions uh, could deny or reduce aid to nearly half of Americans, according to census data. And, you know, recall, too, that the whole purpose of getting people money, it shouldn't be just to keep us out of the streets. It should be to keep us socially distanced. Because every other civilized country in the world has maintained people's salaries at 90%, 80%, you know, 50, even even a few thousand dollars a month makes a difference. And it makes it so that you don't have to go out and be out in front of people. But it seems like the United States, states is trying to put us with more infected people on purpose. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. Now, this isn't Donald Trump trying to send kids back to school to infect everyone and to ensure that this pandemic rages on. It's President Biden. So here's here's Biden from a, a tweet that he did a day ago. He says, "Before taking office, I set the goal of opening most K through eighth grade schools by the end of my first 100 days." It's a national imperative, one that can only be achieved if Congress provides states and communities with their resources they need to get it done safely through the American Rescue Plan, blah, 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 blah. You can't get it done safely. You cannot put people in schools until we have this pandemic under control. It doesn't matter uh, how much money states and localities have to play with. That, that absolutely doesn't play into this at all. We have got to turn the heat down on this virus the only way to do that is to make sure that people aren't uh, communicating it back and forth like at school and so now they're saying they want to open schools for one day a week which is even more ridiculous because you're not getting any of the benefit of social distancing if everyone's going to schlep themselves off to school one day a week. All that's doing is making sure that everybody who has kids in school gets exposed to the virus, regardless of whether or not you're teleschooling or homeschooling or whatever it is. It's almost like they got to just get that one last shot in there to make sure that, you, that everyone's exposed to, to uh, COVID-19. Now, I happen to be one of these people who actually liked school. I liked school. I liked college. I liked all that stuff. I like teachers. And I like people generally. And I don't like the idea of putting these people at risk. Uh, You're putting them at, at, at risk for medical crises that they may or may not be able to pay for. And you're also putting them at risk for long haul COVID, which uh, if you're unaware, long haul COVID is, we don't know what it's doing. We don't know how long it lasts. We don't know uh, how it impacts your health over the long term. But we do know that people have uh, who have contracted COVID as early as last February and March are still experiencing long haul COVID symptoms that Uh, seem to be a lot like uh, what we call chronic fatigue syndrome or uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, ME-CFS, which is what I have. And I should be able to say it better, but it's hard to say. I got to say, too, that there is quite a a, a contradiction uh, of, of, of people, you know, jumping up and down and saying that there are no safe ways to do indoor dining at the same time they're saying they want to send people back to school people need immediate financial support to stay home as much as possible or this country is fucked writes uh, pat the burner uh listen to science biden said bullshit he's not listening to science i don't know who he's listening to Back to the Daily Poster article, remember that? That's what we started out talking about. Uh, It turns out that uh, elite media outlets are jumping at the chance to limit aid, as we're talking about. Uh, Quote, Biden's stimulus risks giving money to people who won't spend it. This is a Bloomberg headline that's blaring this. Oh, my God. People might not spend their stimulus. Listen up. We will promise. We will promise, cross our heart, hope to to, to not die, uh, that we will spend that stimulus. The Washington Post editorial board opined that targeting relief to the neediest, thus freeing up more resources for higher priorities, uh, comports with progressivism, uh, if, if you properly understand that. The post Catherine Rampel wrote that uh, her own column on the study with the headline "It's not prode- It's not progressive to give the I, I'm get- this is getting me to make me too angry This is making me too angry uh, It's not progressive to give rich people money Look Look What's your name Kathy Kathy with a C Kathy Rempel. Uh If you made seventy five thousand dollars in twenty nineteen more than likely you didn't make seventy five thousand dollars in twenty twenty. Add to that the fact that during a pandemic, people have been running up all kinds of unbudgeted costs, like being sick. You know, the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is medical bankruptcy. So during a pandemic, you know, people have lost their job. They no longer have insurance, health insurance. You know, a lot of people are hurting from medical debt. Everything is more expensive during a pandemic. We can't just walk into a a Grocery store and buy groceries. You know, we use Instacart. All of that costs more money. Keeping your kids at home for homeschooling costs more money. You know, because you've got to make sure that they've got the the uh, electronic devices that they need to attend classes. And you know, maybe just maybe if you're lucky, you can afford you know to to bring someone in to help you know a few hours a week. Um, People are really freaking hurting. And this kind of journalism is insulting in the extreme. And you know what's amazing is that these same media outlets, MSNBC, CNN, you know, Joe Scarborough, what's her name with the hair that married him. Uh, they, they These these pundits expressed no similar outrage or concern uh, when Democratic leaders concurrently were pushing uh as they are right now, new tax deductions that could give up to 80% of their benefits to the richest 5% of the country. Because, hey, let the serfs eat salt. That's the way, uh, that's the way it's written in this piece. Salt is the agreement that um, makes it so that people who earn a hell of a lot of money, uh, the upper 5%, don't have to pay or are exempted from paying their state and local taxes. The media also didn't freak out back in March and April of last year in May, when $6 trillion, trillion dollars—trillion with a T, went out the door for corporations and and uh, defense contractors and all kinds of anybody who just, you know, walked up and said, hey, give me a couple million dollars. You know, I mean, it was it was basically people were out there like buying yachts and shit. You know, like like somehow they're worried that somebody who has the salary of a school teacher uh, is is undeserving of two thousand dollars while they funded rich people, business owners, corporate executives and CEOs. They funded them to the tune of enough money to go out and buy yachts. And they're worried about a measly two thousand dollars. You fuck off. So Biden now says that he's renegotiating this whole thing with uh, Republicans uh, who are billing themselves as moderates. Um, and now they're saying that the, that the COVID relief proposal could just be a $1,000 and it would start to phase out at $40,000 for individuals and $80,000 for married couples. Fuck off back to Washington. Honestly, I cannot understand why we're not out in the streets with pitchforks at this point. I mean, these are three guys, uh, uh, Zuckerberg, Bloomberg, and Bill Gates, out there with their opportunity insights just making up, what What do you call this, fake news? Uh even as the opportunity insight study is being shamed and it is, uh, the message is, uh, still gaining momentum in the executive branch. And by that, they mean the executive branch of the government, uh, secretary Treas- of the treasury, uh, Janet Yellen said Sunday that she supported a $60,000 income threshold for individuals to receive stimulus checks. And, uh, Meanwhile, Biden has gone from unequivocally promising immediate $2,000 checks to having to press his team up for incomprehensible gibberish like this word salad from White House Press Secretary Jen Paskey. Well, the president proposed the $1,400 checks to make to plus $600 is, of course, $2,000 because he was felt it was important and vital to get that direct relief to as many Americans as possible. So then with all of this, indications from the democrats that they don't know what the fuck they're doing they don't have control of the message uh republicans surprise surprise are taking advantage of that uh senator rob portman has now returned to the pundit who originally kicked off the effort to stop the checks he touted larry summers's declarations as proof that the stimulus must be slashed signal boosting a wall street journal editorial echoing the argument and so uh Sirota, uh, Perez, and Julia Rock say the process has come full circle. A media-boosted pundit who manufactured the original fraudulent argument against survival checks had returned to center stage, having been injected again into the political conversation by a lawmaker wielding talking points provided by an elite news outlet. It's like a snake eating a tail of its tail of a snake and its tail. The legislative details have changed, but the consent manufacturing machine's goal is the same. Convincing us to cheer on politicians who block promised aid during a catastrophe. And again, I I can't see how this gets any worse. I don't understand why we aren't in out in the streets in, in pitchforks and in terms of politics, this is insane. This is crazy. Nancy Pelosi was actually out there this week, uh, just just today, saying that she wants a strong Republican Party. Now, she was uh, responding to what was going on with the impeachment and the acquittal and, you know, all of that mess there. And the concern that she's showing is for Republicans To have a strong party. She's not showing solidarity with us. She's not showing solidarity or any kind of concern. She doesn't have any prayers for, you know, regular people who are about to lose their uh, house over their roof over their head or their housing. Uh, People who have lost jobs, people who are in ill health because of long haul COVID, people who have lost family members due to the pandemic. There's no prayers for us. There is nobody helping us. All they're doing is, is chasing their tails and, 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 you know, jerking everyone off. And we see this. We actually see this because uh, some of us are still too numb of mind to turn off cable news. Listen, guys, turn off cable news. It, is, it, it will rot your brain. All it is is a bunch of plutocrats talking to other plutocrats about how plutocratic Everything ought to be. And, you know, the only reasonable response to that amount of horseshit is uh, you fuck off. Hey, fuck off. Fuck
1: off back to Washington.
0: And fuckety fuck. Fuck you. Fuck off. Fuck all the way off. Fuck you forever. Keep fucking yourself until you're fucking off the fucking fuck planet. You fucking fuckstick fuckers. I fucking hate you. <laughs> We're here with Janine Maloff with this week's Justice Report, and I bet you're going to talk about the (laughs) impeachment
1: proceedings. Yes, of course. (laughs) And and since you're down in Florida and I'm here in St. Louis, I hope that little Donnie Trump is listening. (laughs) Ha ha. But, you know, I did some research and I love journalist Tom Hartman. Okay, he just does such wonderful work. So I'm basing a lot of it on some research he did. So the question is this one. Did Trump conspire with the mob uh, that laid siege to the Capitol on January 6th? Did Trump conspire with the mob to commit treason and possibly premeditated murder, even though the murder didn't occur? Journalist Tom Hartman documented uh, these suspicions and make some strong theories. And the second question, which is going to be the second half of this report, based on information I just found, actually, Did the Democrats offer a strong case for preventing Trump from ever holding office again? I'll give you a clue. The answer is no. And it's a really simple answer. But let's get into it. So first of all, Hillary Clinton. You know, I was for Bernie and and I was not a Hillary fan and not because of the reason a lot of sexists didn't like her. I just don't like neoliberalism. But Hillary said it best. She said it in a tweet regarding Trump's second impeachment. And to quote her, she said, quote, if Senate Republicans fail to convict Donald Trump, it won't be because the facts were with him or his lawyers mounted a competent defense. It will be because the jury includes his co-conspirators, end quote. And I agree. Not only did the GOP vote to acquit Trump, but many of them did so with the bland indifference not seen since the cruelty of Hitler's Third Reich. There was never any question as to how my own senators from Missouri, namely Roy Roy Blunt and Josh Hawley, were going to vote. They've been Trump apologists since the beginning of this what can only be called national abuse. Roy Blunt, face it, he's part of the national GOP leadership team, and he's occupied the number four spot in the national GOP Senate leadership team for years. He lurks in the shadows while letting others do the dirty work for him. He's been the subject of journalistic investigation by the Center for Media and Democracy. Blunt was trained by one of the most openly corrupt members of Congress, Congressman Tom DeLay. After DeLay was criminally charged, convicted, and incarcerated, Blunt must have decided to increase the stealth factor exponentially. Now, you might not see much of him in the press until recently, but there isn't anything in D.C. that aids the rich and powerful while damaging the rest of us and damaging democracy itself. It doesn't bear Roy Blunt's political fingerprints all over it. But that's another story for a later date. I just feel the need to point that out. Now, Josh Hawley, he's modeled himself as a new wonderkind, fighting the global elites. By the way, that's Nazi code for Jews and other well-educated liberals identifying them as targets. I can't decide if Hawley's being tastelessly ironic or he's just that unaware, but the anti-elitist label won't work for him. His undergrad degree is from Stanford. It's hardly deep in the hood. And he's also an alumnus from the Yale Law School, the very bastion of white Christian elitism. Now, perhaps Hawley enjoys the incongruity of his own brand. Maybe he's fine with the old school elitism of the Ivies, as long as that elitism is derived from old money from white Christians. You know, the, the white Jesus crowd. At any rate, the second impeachment was filled with GOPers eager to just demonstrate their disrespect and boredom for the process. Marco Rubio from your Florida was rumored to have bragged about reaching a top Candy Crush score, a personal best. Holly put his feet on the desk in front of him as he dutifully ignored the situation. Now, while it's true, the minority leader Mitch McConnell verbally declared Trump to be a criminal worthy of indictment. He did so after voting to acquit that same criminal. In fact, the claims of the process being unconstitutional because the Senate trial occurred after Trump left office are McConnell's doing the house impeached Trump while still in office. The Senate had time to begin the trial. It was McConnell that stonewalled thus creating the excuse for Trump's lawyers. Basically McConnell ran out the clock. So his condemnations are irrelevant. Now, I'm going to agree the entire impeachment process is a political trial, as Republicans claim. That's true. The reason this second impeachment was important is simple. It was, to ke- it was designed to keep Trump from running for office again and again. And more importantly, it was to place the rogue GOP on notice. The siege inter- insurrection on January 6th did not begin on January 6th. In fact, it didn't begin with Trump. It dates back to the Brooks Brothers riot in 2000 as GOP operatives in Florida, including some well known retreads such as news commentator Matt Schlapp, Trump crony Roger Stone, and now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, stormed the Florida election headquarters in question and worked to bang the doors down in service to another spoiled Republican politician, namely George W. Bush. Now, P.S., I don't care. If George W, now known as W, is now besties with Michelle Obama, that doesn't change history. That doesn't erase W's legacy as the president who demanded the DOJ Office of Legal Counsel legalize torture. But again, that's another report. If I'm going off a little bit it's because I'm just that frustrated, but I'm getting into it. It's safe to say that this began with W and has continued at an exponential rate with Trump. So now we have the fallout from the very violent siege of the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Trump and his minions came close to nullifying election results by this violent attack. Now, there's many theories that are out there, but there's one specific theory that has really gained my attention recently. And again, t- journalist Tom Hartman spells out the makings of a dictatorial coup that was, frankly, premeditated and as such, well-planned. And you could argue included the premeditated murder of Vice President Pence. Now, it might not have been Trump pulling the trigger or even Trump calling the hit. In other words, calling, ordering the assassination. But the chain of command points to Trump's involvement in the demand for this siege. There's enough circumstantial evidence to raise these questions. So let's look at the evidence and the theory while remembering Then most criminal prosecutions are successful using circumstantial evidence. So Tom Hartman wrote for, well, actually, this one was four hours ago, Um, wrote this piece titled, Did Trump Think His Mob Had Taken Pence Hostage? Quote, Was this tweet a call to, quote, take out Pence? And there's some doublespeak there. You have to remember, Trump and his minions, especially those on the alt-right, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis. They don't always say things directly. They use code. And this is not just my opinion. It's been documented by groups such as the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League. And it's been documented in gory detail. So Hartman's pointing the fact, what if the question, quote, what if Donald Trump actually hoped that his mob would murder Vice President Mike Pence and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi? What if he believed such a crime would create a crisis big enough to, one, let him declare a state of emergency, two, shut down the government for a transition period through that emergency, and three, retain his his position as president moving into the new year, end quote. Three parts, and they're very relevant. Again, this is Tom Hartman's theory. I am describing it. And it is based on circumstantial evidence, but that's enough to demand it be investigated further. And that, and, and what would Trump gain if the siege had actually been fully successful and, according to him, actually assassinated Vice President Mike Pence and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi? According to Hartman, it would have triggered a series of events. It would have allowed Trump to one declare a state of emergency. Two, it would have allowed Trump to shut down the government for a transition period throughout this unnamed emergency with really no ending point. And three, retain himself as dictator or president, thus nullifying Biden's election to the presidency. It's very real. And we really must investigate it further. So now Tom Hartman is talking about Tommy Tuberville, Senator Tommy Tuberville. And he points out that Politico uh, reported this hardly a liberal bastion. Um, And apparently, according to this, Tuberville told Politico that he told Trump, quote, Mr. President, they just took the vice president out. I've got to go, end quote. But then they go on to the fact that there's no indication on any public record right now that Trump understood that the quote, they just took the vice president out meant that Pence had been actually ushered to safety. And once again, to quote this, to quote uh, this piece, quote, they just took him out could have been taken by Trump to mean the mob had taken Pence just as easily as it could mean the Capitol police had saved Pence from the mob, end quote. So, you know, it's possible Trump thought Tuberville was confirming that the mob had basically seized Pence and Pelosi, and was basically heading them to that gallows that you saw they built on the Capitol lawn. You don't build a gallows unless you intend to use it. So, this, uh, according to HuffPost, Trump practically immediately tweeted. Right after talking to Senator Tuberville, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, giving states a chance to certify a corrected set of facts, not the fraudulent ones or inaccurate ones, which they were asked to previously certify. USA demands the truth, end quote. Again, with his exclamation marks. Well, you know, that could be interpreted a couple of ways. And again, since the alt-right white supremacists and neo-Nazis use coded language frequently. And again, it has been documented. Uh, This could mean a couple different things. On the surface, it could mean that Trump was, you know, relieved that Pence was safe and that the certification process, whatever happened, would happen. But then Tom Hartman makes the question. What if Trump believed by Tuberville's statement that Pence had been, as the mobster said, neutralized. In other words, the Pence had been captured by the mob and was about to be murdered. You know, could that tweet that Trump issued been a call for his congressional allies to throw out the count, throw it back to the House, and where in the past, The Republicans could then just throw out the electoral vote and grant Trump the presidency uh, per the 12th Amendment, like in 1876. You know, and Trump has asserted this repeatedly in the past. It is a it is not histrionics to question this. It is a very relevant question. Given the people involved, given Trump's past record, yeah, this needs to be investigated further. You can't take, we know now, what he says at face value necessarily. And again, these aren't accusations. These are very pointed questions that must be investigated. So, you know, if if that's what Trump thought was going on, if he thought that Pence had been neutralized, that he had been Based on what Tuberville told him, that Pence had been uh, seized by the mob, and so had Pelosi, and they were about to be executed, or had been executed. With that gallows that they erected, that Trump saw, never told them to stop. Then this phone call that was documented with Kevin McCarthy, that was documented by many, including NBC News, makes a whole lot more sense. Okay when trump told mccarthy that the mob was more worried about the outcome of the election than mccarthy was that makes a whole lot more sense in this new scenario and and, and once again his tweet trump's tweet his comments to mccarthy along with the conversation with tuberville they would all form they would all form that same context that same frame of reference, the belief that possibly Trump thought Pence would be dead soon, the government would be paralyzed, he could declare a state of emergency, and yeah, he could declare himself dictator or president for life or whatever. So there's another question, according to Tom Hartman, and that is if Pence's Secret Service detail had informed or told Trump's Secret Service detail that Pence was hiding in a secret room in the Capitol and they told Trump was Trump's tweet to the mob to search harder, to find Pence. Was that to basically make it easier to find Pence so the mob could kill him and overthrow the election because Pence had already said, that he was fulfilled his constitutional duty. So, and you have to remember too, Tom Hartman documents that Trump, his minions repeatedly tweeted, and this is as documented by the New York Post, messages that said Trump would be present for 8, 12, and even 16 more years. Now it could be they figured, okay, we'll get rid of the two terms you're out, but it could have been something far more Machiavellian to make matters worse, to build this circumstantial case for which we must demand answers. Trump appointed a new secretary of defense, Christopher Miller. And this, he did this right after the networks declared Trump had lost. The secretary of defense issued a memo, which basically ordered the national guard to stand down. um, If there was violence on January 6th and Tom, Tom Hartman wrote about this, about the memo. And that memo forbade the National Guard from providing the following. The National Guard, according to Secretary of Defense Miller's orders, forbid the National Guard from providing helmets or tear gas to Capitol Police on January 6th. If they were going to do that, they had to obtain Miller's specific permission And Miller withheld that permission for hours as then Vice President Pence was being hunted by the mob. I'm not a fan of Mike Pence, but this is about law and order. Nobody deserves to be hunted like that. And this is really unusual behavior by a Secretary of Defense. Tom Hartman goes into it further in a piece titled, Is This the Smoking Gun of Trump's Treason? Okay. And again, His question is very to the point. Hartman's question is this: Did the president lead or participate in a conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States and install himself as a strongman dictator for life? End quote. And again, news reporting from the New York Times brought additional details to the investigation. Uh, one of the things we found out, that this st- and we you could have found by just going online, too, the Stop the Steal campaign, this invasion, it was not spontaneous by a bunch of grassroots people. It was the result of a well-planned, you could call it a conspiracy. Um, and he goes on further, and he basically implicates, Hartman implicates the RAGA, which is the Republican Attorney General's Association. Um And he uses a um, basically a a site documented dot, dot net. Okay, and here's the quote, quote, the rally had taken on new branding, the March to Save America and other groups were joining in, among them, the Republican Attorney General's Association. This is according to the Times Reporters, New York Times. It's Raga's policy wing, the Rule of Law Defense Fund, promoted event in a robocall that said we will march to the capitol building and call on congress to stop the steal, according to a recording obtained by a progressive investigative group documented end quote to make it worse more damning there have been multiple reports including um well that there was a shadowy what they call a shadow of meeting in other words there was a meeting january 5th the night before at the dc trump hotel in Trump's own private suite, and there were some major people there, and this could be key to determining was there a possible conspiracy to overthrow the government. And this was written by Seth Abramson. Abramson excuse me. Um, according to this, an associate of Senator Tuberville's. Um, was quoted as saying, quote, the then director of the Republican Attorney General Association uh, noted on Facebook that Tuberville was among the participants, although the senator has since denied it. His denials notwithstanding, multiple photos of him in the Trump Hotel and purported to have been taken on that night have surfaced, end quote. So it's circumstantial, but it's enough to demand answers. Then there was a rally on the ellipse by a group called Women for America First. Now, this group wasn't planning on marching to the Capitol building at all. But when Trump and some of his buddies showed up at the rally, they demanded a march to the Capitol building. Trump announced he'd march with the crowd uh, after he left his speaking position behind bulletproof glass. But instead, he took his bulletproof limousine back to the White House. Now... Regarding any original peaceful rally organizers, the New York Times noted, quote, Mr. Stockton said he was surprised to learn on the day of the rally that it would now include a march from the Ellipse to the Capitol. The Times added before the White House became involved, he said the plan had been to stay at the Ellipse until the counting of state electoral slates was completed, end quote. And now we go to Miller's Secretary, Acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller's memo. He wrote this memo two days before the assault. Okay. And now some people have questioned whether or not this is truly official. It looks official. According to this memo was, um, it says here, quote, Employee, Employment Guidance for the District of Columbia National Guard. I'm just reading straight from it. This memorandum responds to your January 4th, 2021 memorandum regarding the District of Columbia request for District of Columbia National Guard support in response to planned demonstrations from January 5th to 6, 2021. You are authorized to approve the requested support subject to my guidance below and subject to consultation with the Attorney General as required by Executive Order, noted Executive Order 11485. Here it goes. Without my subsequent personal authorization, the District of Columbia National Guard is not authorized the following. Don't you just love this crazy language? In other words, these are the things that the National Guard was forbidden from doing by by acting by acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller. Being issued weapons, ammunition, bayonets, batons, or ballistic protection equipment, such as helmets and body armor. They were forbidden to interact physically with protesters, except when necessary, in self-defense or defense of others, and again, consistent with the National Guard's rules for the use of force. They were forbidden uh, from employing any riot control agents. They were forbidden from sharing equipment with law enforcement agencies. They were forbidden from using intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets or to conduct intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, ISR, um, or incident awareness and assessment activities. They were forbidden from employing helicopters or any other air assets. They were forbidden from conducting searches, seizures, arrests, or uh, other similar direct law enforcement activity. And they were forbidden from seeking support from any non- District of Columbia National Guard units. This is why you saw the National Guardsmen doing traffic duty, because they were forbidden from doing anything else by the acting Secretary of Defense, Christopher Miller, who had just been appointed by Trump days before. Okay. And we know from this show that I have reported before that there was an intelligence breakdown And that that prevented agencies from getting full information, which again speaks to the issue that this siege on the Capitol was very premeditated. Very. Okay. Mark Ames wrote for the National Memo, quote, the full memo shows the D.C. Guard did receive a request from D.C. government for Guard presence during the January 6th event, Miller responds promptly to go ahead so long as the soldiers are given no weapons, no body armor, and no helmets. They can bring agents like pepper spray or flashbangs. They can't share any gear with Capitol Police or Metro D.C. police. They can't really do much of anything. The Capitol Police Union's chairman, Gus Papadounisou, hard to say, was quoted saying, quote, We have one officer who lost his life as a direct result of the insurrection. Another officer has tragically taken his own life Between USCP and our colleagues at the Metropolitan Police Department, we have almost 140 officers injured. I have officers who were not issued helmets prior to the attack who have sustained brain injuries. One officer has two cracked ribs and two smashed spinal discs. Uh, One officer is going to lose his eye, and another was stabbed with a metal fence stake. Okay, other reporting as documented by Alternet, defined what the Capitol Police could ask the D.C. National Guard for but Capitol police, well, it just makes it sound like the Capitol police just somehow ignored FBI and other warnings, which I don't believe. Um, Vanity for vanity, excuse me, Vanity Fair reported that Miller claimed that Trump threw him under the bus. But once again, that's what we have here. Now getting back to this really fast here. Um, This memo was very damning, no doubt about it. So, How do we punish Trump, okay? Calls of sedition, okay? Now we know, for instance, David K. Johnson wrote that Trump, quote, Trump signals his coup plotting isn't really over. No shock there. Trump doesn't have the sense to know when to go home. Um, My own Republican Senator Josh Hawley and others defended or excuse Trump's solicitation of mob violence, as Johnson said. And the fact is that there was a lot of propaganda out there. We know that. But let's look at what several, beyond D.C., what Trump has did <clears throat> across the nation at the same time. Okay? Some of the American brown shirts did the following, the same week. In Utah, at the Utah Capitol in Salt Lake City, armed Trumpists marshaled outside in Sacramento. Police arrested 12 Trumpists for illegal possession of pepper spray during protest. In Salem, Oregon, Trump's proud boys fought outside the state capitol. The police declared an unlawful assembly. A woman burned an effigy, Governor Kate Brown, who's a Democrat. In Olympia, Washington, Trumpists broke down the fence to the governor's official mansion while Governor Insulina's family were inside. In Atlanta, armed Trump thugs gathered outside the Capitol, which made state police hustle Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger out, um, out of the building because they were concerned that apparently there was a former KKK leader there, and this guy now directs one of Trump's fake patriot support groups. Trump's thugs randomly hassled people in Los Angeles, a black woman walking down the street found herself surrounded by Trump thugs who demanded she declare who she voted for in November elections. In Topeka, Kansas, demonstrators echoed Trump's nonsense that he really won, entered the state capitol. They were peaceful. Um, On an American Airlines flight from Texas to Washington, it was, quote, quote, flight attendants We're struggling to control a plane full of Trump supporters. They display a pro-Trump projection and harass other passengers bound for D.C. That is according to freelance journalist Marini Ney, our state. So we go on. So what can we do about this? Okay. What can we do about this? Well, there is something we can do, and it's something that the Democrats did not consider at all. The fact is this, the National Memo published this. If the Democrats really wanted to punish Trump, what they should have done is use the 14th Amendment and prosecute him for sedition. They could still do, you know, and and again, even if impeachment fails. So, you know, why bother? Because Trump can come back otherwise, all right? And the fact is that the January 6th siege could have been far worse. It just could have been. It wasn't, but it could have been. So here's what they could have actually done. See, there were two, um, two law professors that brought this up, okay? And that was law professor Bruce Ackerman from the Yale Law School and uh, uh, law professor Gerard Magliocca of Indiana University. And they noted in the Washington Post, that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution has a provision that would take care of Trump. And it says the following, quote, that any officer of the United States who is engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof shall not be allowed to hold any office, civil or military under the United States, end quote. Now, ironically, that part of the 14th Amendment was ratified after the Civil War. And the idea was to prevent former Confederates from getting positions of power in the very government that they, they waged war against. So, you know, basically it, it has really a lot of advantages. And it's it's pretty simple to do. Um, first, if you use the 14th Amendment in that way to charge Trump with sedition, it would only take a simple majority of both houses. You wouldn't have to worry about the GOP holding back. We wouldn't need two-thirds majority in the Senate. Simple majority, both houses, which the Democrats presently have. Um, and it could be done quickly. All right? So the Democrats can move on to urgent policy, uh, policy matters. All right? Instead, we were told, oh, well, there's not much we can do about it. They could have used the 14th Amendment with sedition and Trump would have been prevented from ever holding office again. In fact, that same tactic could have been used on Mitch McConnell and the others. Instead, the Democrats refused to uh, have any any witnesses. They caved. They allowed themselves to be held hostage by the rogue GOP. We won the election, and the few GOP votes to convict Trump were inconsequential and unnecessary. Having witness testimony was necessary. As for the bogus claim that caving on the witness issue was to prevent COVID relief delays engineered by the GOP, that's nonsense, too. This is the same GOP that did nothing while Trump lied about the COVID virus and pushed a policy of premeditated criminal neglect. This GOP has proven itself to be utterly without any integrity. They're morally bankrupt. The fact is this. You don't don't cave to abusers. You don't appease abusers and neo Nazis. You fight them. To use ironically Trump's words, we don't need their votes.
0: So, Janine, pardon my interruption, but I'm I'm very interested in uh, a little bit. Do you have any more to share on the legal side of this Fourteenth am- Amendment issue?
1: So, there were two law professors that I found. One was Professor Ackerman at Yale and Professor Magliocca at Indiana University. And what they said is since Trump appeared to have engaged in an act of insurrection or rebellion by encouraging the attack on the Capitol, just encouraging it, they could have charged him with sedition under the 14th Amendment. And this option has a lot of advantages. First of all, you don't need the GOP. This option says it would only take a simple majority of both houses, and it can be done quickly. All right? Very, very quickly. So all this, you know, all this whining about how all oh, those poor Republicans that didn't know how to vote, nonsense. The fact that the majority of the members of majority of the legislature just happens to be attorneys, and you mean to tell me they didn't know about this? Nonsense. So people ask them, well, why? Why wouldn't they do that? It's not just to protect Trump. Here's my theory. The 14th Amendment sedition charges could possibly also be used to take out and prevent members of Congress from running for office ever again, too, including people like Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You can go down the list. And so the members of Congress, both parties were more concerned about their, in my opinion, their own political futures than bringing justice. That's it. Trump came dangerously close to installing himself as a dictator if Tom Hartman's theories are accurate. And this could have been remedied very simply by using the suggestion charges from the 14th Amendment. Mitch McConnell could sit and spin. It would make a bit of difference. So, and this also explains why some of these younger Republicans like Hawley and Marco Rubio were sitting there Totally indifferent because one, they knew that the Dems didn't have votes to do a traditional impeachment conviction. Two, they also knew that both Dems and Republicans weren't going to allow the use of the 14th Amendment sedition charges to to prevent Trump from running again because then that would implicate them as well. That's why they knew there was no danger. So all this and the national media again they talk about how there was this beautiful case put on by the Democrats. Again, why didn't they use this? Why didn't the media, the corporate media, call them out? They didn't though. They didn't because once again, this is about protecting the donor class, the billionaire class, the corporate class, that by the way, gives in obscene amounts of money. To both parties, all in the name of dubious corporate personhood. Okay, that's why they didn't use the 14th Amendment, the sedition charge. And that's why we did not get justice. And that's why Donald Trump could possibly run again. Now, could the Congress do the 14th Amendment sedition charge later? They could. Will they do it? I doubt it. I very much doubt it because then it opens up that bag of words, worms for some of them too. And I have no faith in them. The only way this we're going to have a functional democracy, and this is my opinion, is the following. One, we need to demand accountability and transparency from all. This qualified immunity, first of all, presidential immunity from criminal charges needs to be stopped. It's based on a 2000 OLC memo that basically has never been challenged in court with the unitary executive. The only reason it has legal credence is because the politicians say so, but it's never been tested in court. Two, we need to make sure that we have full accountability. That means end the, uh, the filibuster as we know it. Now, a lot of people, they think of the filibuster, they think of this you know, moment from Mr. Smith goes to Washington, or when Bernie Sanders talked to stop a bill. That's not what they mean by the filibuster. The filibuster was changed by Republicans, and they don't even have to give the long speeches. When they enact the filibuster, it means that to pass anything, it requires a 60-vote count. That's it. And a simple majority is nullified. Filibuster needs to be eradicated as an undemocratic artifact. And then finally, we need to open up the airway for independent alternative voices. Big media should not be allowed to consolidate everything. These media monopolies need to be broken up because otherwise what we have right now is somebody like Donald Trump who nearly took over, nearly became president for life, a dictator, whatever, and he still hasn't been punished because, again, the remedy, the Fourteenth Amendment charges for sedition, will not has not been used and won't be used. And if it's used in, in the future, it will only be if we pressure them. And right now, they don't feel any pressure because, again, corporate media has not mentioned it, and they need to. Again. This is what needed to happen. And that's my report.
0: And that was the always wonderful Janine Maloff uh, with the Justice Report. And don't forget to listen to the Environmental Justice Report on Thursdays. It will be in your podcatcher if you're using a podcatcher. And it's right here on Blog Talk Radio if you don't have that. And uh, you know what? As always, uh, we hope to see you again next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy Valentine's Day.